Well, welcome, guys. It's so good to have you all here on this Easter morning. My name is Pastor Josh. And first of all, let me just acknowledge the big risk we're taking by not doing junior church. <laughs> I fully acknowledge that. That was my call. Uh, I think one of the things, I'll, I'll try to keep my remarks brief uh, here this morning. The biggest statement that's going to be made in this room today is going to be made by those four Jesus followers who are going to enter the waters of baptism. And I really don't have many words to add to that beautiful picture that they're going to preach with their very selves by going down into the water. I do just have a few things I want to say to put that in context. But kids, I'm going to try and keep it brief, okay? Parents, I promise. <laughs> As one of you, I, that's my goal this morning. Uh, this Earlier this week, I was looking for somebody's contacts in my phone and I could not remember this person's last name. So I was just scrolling through, looking. I remembered the first name, but not the last. And as I was scrolling through my phone, I kept encountering what I call memorial contacts. Do you guys do this? Over the years, as I've had my phone, different people that I've known and loved have died. And I just never delete that contact. I just like to keep it there in my phone. And every once in a while, as I'm scrolling, I'll encounter it. And it's just like visiting, almost like visiting a grave or something like that. But as I was flipping, scrolling through my phone, I encountered, I realized I have over 20 in the few short years that I've had. I actually haven't had a cell phone that long. But in those years, I have lost 20 people that I once entered that I knew that I would call and talk to, and now they've died. And the reason why I bring up that sad, macabre fact is this. The fact of death is what brings so much joy to our Easter celebration this morning. Easter is nothing less than a celebration of the death of death. And when my friends go into the waters of baptism, what they are proclaiming for all the world is that they have put their trust in a God who has brought an end to death. And I'm looking out over a room right now of people who will certainly one day die if Jesus should not come back soon. I wonder if we held a reunion of this exact gathering this morning in 10 years, 20 years, how many of us would still be here? Some of us certainly would not be. And if we kept going on into the future, my guess is we'd get out pretty sparse as the decades went on. Eventually, we will all die. Can anything be done about this? Easter is a celebration of what God has done about the problem of death. Now, this morning, to put the baptisms in some context, I want to share with you principally two scriptures. One tells us where to go for salvation, and the other speaks to the spirit with which we should come to that place that we can go to for salvation. The first is this, in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Jesus is recorded as saying, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, 
For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to death, and those who find it are few. And then in Mark 10, 13 through 15, we find one of two separate places where Jesus makes this statement. He said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So this morning, before we go to the baptisms, I want to just explain what it means by a narrow gate and what it means to receive the kingdom like a child. Jesus said that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, for any of us who want to go to heaven, those words should land on our ears with weight. Jesus said, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you shall not enter it. These two passages speak to us of where to go for salvation and with what spirit we should go there. And we need to spend a little time with this before we come to the baptism. First, let's talk about where to go for salvation. First of all, let me just state it bluntly. We all need salvation. We all need a Savior. There is no one here this morning who, by virtue of their good works, has earned any favor from God whatsoever. The Bible says very plainly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I am looking out over a large gathering this morning of men and women who have fallen short. You've missed the mark. You've sinned. And because you've sinned, you've earned God's wrath. If I asked you if somebody who does a wicked thing should be punished, most of us would say yes. If you've done wrong, that should be punished. And then if I ask, have you done wrong? Well, yeah. Should you be punished? If God is to be a righteous judge, sin must be punished. And we've all sinned. So where do we go then to find salvation? If the wages of sin is death and we've all sinned, what can be done about it? Are we all doomed? <laughs> no, says Josiah in the front row. It's very true. <laughs> Okay, we're done. Okay, to, to the, to the, straight to the baptisms. In these verses, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Now, in those verses, there is some discouraging language. For example, we are told that the gate, the gate that leads to life is narrow. The way to it is hard, and those who find it are few. Narrow, hard, few. How discouraging. Don't you wish that our God had used words like wide, easy, and many instead, but he does not. Those words are applied to the way that leads to destruction. Now, I'm a glass-half-empty kind of guy. If you get to know me, you'll get to realize that fact. I'm kind of a downer. <laughs> and, and I can easily be drawn into kind of a somber place thinking about those discouraging words. But join me for just a moment in considering the joyous fact that there is a way. It's narrow. It's hard. Few find it, perhaps. But there is a way. 
There's a gate, a blessed door out of this sin-fallen, disease-ridden, tear-filled place that stinks of death and rot and disappointment and coming wrath. If you are in this place and your soul has grown to an awareness of the fact that you are living in a sin-clouded, fallen world under the cloud of death and judgment, I want you to know there's a way. There's a way home. There's a way out. So don't blow right past this amazing news that there's a gate that leads to life. These are inspiring words for any of us who have come to see the true reality of our circumstances in this fallen world. And this gate of life that was opened for us on that first Easter morning over 2,000 years ago, the opening of the gate was the rolling away of a stone from a tomb. In John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The gate is the resurrected Jesus himself. What did Jesus mean when he said that the way is narrow that leads to salvation and life? A couple different ideas. I think it's true that it's narrow in the sense that we can only pass through one at a time. This is a decision you have to make for yourself. My, this morning when we do the baptisms, I'm going to be privileged to baptize two of my own sons. And as grateful as I am that God gave them to me as sons, how much more joyous is it that they're now my brothers? And I'll tell you a fact, I can't compel them to make this decision. No one can. Salvation, salvation is such a thing that God pulls a person towards, but no one can ever be pushed towards it. This is something you have to decide for yourself. You're a free moral agent, and God is a respecter of decisions. He sets before you life and death, and the decision is yours. But you can only go through one at a time. My mom and dad were believers. But they couldn't make that decision for me any more than I can for my own children. My children, as much as I love them and wish I could make decisions for them, are free moral agents. They must decide the Jesus question for themselves. So it's narrow in that sense. You can't go through hand in hand. You've got to make this decision for yourself. And it's narrow in the sense that you can't take some things with you in coming to Christ. You can't bring with you a love for the world or continuation in sin. I think nobody becomes a believer who doesn't become a lover of righteousness. But yes, by embracing Christ, you will have to let go of some other things. By embracing the coming kingdom, we must let go of the world. Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So those two things are true. I think it's narrow in the sense that um, you have to go through on your own. It's narrow in the sense that there are some things that you can't bring with you through that opening. But that's, none of those are the primary meaning of what Jesus means when he says it's a narrow gate. I think that the primary meaning is it's narrow in the sense that there is only one door to leads to life. He's speaking about a narrowness of options. 
I think this comes close to the primary meaning that Jesus had in mind when he describes the gate as narrow. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. In other words, I'm the gate. And then he adds these words, no one comes to the Father except through me. How narrow. How very, very narrow. In verses like 1 Peter 3.15, we're told to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But then it adds, yet do this with gentleness and respect. So the Bible calls followers of Jesus to be respectful of other religious traditions and to hold our convictions with gentleness in the presence of those who don't share them. But the Bible is also clear that the truth claims of Christianity are inherently competitive. And whereas Christianity should coexist peacefully alongside other belief systems in our neighborhoods, it cannot share the same space in your heart with another. You have to decide this matter personally, and you must decide it firmly, because there is only one way. It is a narrow way, and although we are certainly called to hold to that narrow way with gentleness and respect to those who disagree, it is such a thing that whereas it can share place in society, it cannot share room in the heart of an individual. So this is what's meant by a narrow way. It's a narrowness of options. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to the Father, We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's a narrow way. There is only one way back. I comment on this a lot, but there is a, pu a beautiful symmetry to the story of God's plan to redeem fallen man. If you know your Bibles well, you might remember that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, the Bible says that there were lots of trees that they could eat from and live but only one, if they ate the fruit of that tree, they would die. And what I want you to see is that there, there was a narrowness of options. The way that left led into the death abundant in which we all live was a narrow way. Adam and Eve chose death through a narrow way. Have you ever thought about that? There was only one way. Lots of trees they could eat from and live. Only one, if they ate from it, they'd die. And now we live on the other side of that. We live on the other side of that disastrous decision that plummeted all of mankind into all this wretched misery. Cancer, war, disease, crimes, rape. The list goes on and on and on. How many tears have been shed? How many graves have been visited? We live in a place that is not a place to invest your heart. And in this fallen, wretched world of sin and death, we've been told there is a narrow way. Do you see the beautiful mirror symmetry of it all? There are, in this life, there are so many ways to die and only one way to know life. And the tree from which we eat to gain life is a strange cross-shaped kind of tree. And the fruit that we pluck from it is a broken body, it's spilled blood. It is a strange beckoning back through a narrow way 
a narrowness of options back into God's favor. And I am speaking to people who are here in the dark, on this side of the fall, and I want so badly to help you find the way back home. But my heart is heavy with the knowledge that many will die in the dark. And you don't have to. This narrow way is open to you. And it's not difficult to find. It's difficult in the sense that it's a life that runs contrary to the downward pull of these days. There will be hardness and difficult things attached with going in that direction. But it's not complicated. It's not hard to find. It's not hidden from you. It's wide open and any and all can go through it. You can go through it today and know life. And Jesus this morning, I believe on this beautiful Easter morning, is beckoning you back in through a narrow way. There's only one way home, guys. And it's not hidden. It's not complicated. Anyone can pass through into life. Jesus makes this statement, and this is the second one I want. Am I keeping my promise? Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Jesus says this. So that's where you go. Now, here's the spirit with which we need to go there. Jesus speaking in Mark 10, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Jesus is stating this emphatically. Anytime in your Bibles where you see this, truly, I say to you, Jesus is really showing us what I'm about to say, even though it's hard to believe, is absolutely true. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. On two different occasions, Jesus told his disciples that unless they become like children and receive the kingdom of God like a child, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean when he says this? The word for child might be helpful to know that in the Greek, in our Greek version of the Bibles, the word for child is pahidion. I hope there's no Greeks here this morning. I'm sure I butchered that. Pahidion. This word means infant. It might be helpful to know. It says, in calling to him a child, he put him in the midst and says, truly I say to you, unless a you turn and become like a pahidion, an infant, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, first of all, what does this not mean? Jesus is not saying to you this morning that you must come to him with a childish intellect. He is not saying that although you are an adult with a fully developed mind and you are capable of critical analysis... Although you are filled with skepticisms and a desire to study, he is not saying to you, you must come to me in a simple, unquestioning way. How many of you are satisfied when you say, why? And they say, because I said so. (laughs) I'm not. That always turns me off in a big way. That makes me want to ask more questions. I don't think God is saying that about coming to him like a child. He's not saying, stop bringing me adult-sized questions. 
No, that's not true, and I can show you why that's not true. First of all, God revealed Himself not in a coloring book, but the Bible. Sixty-six books with lots of questions to ponder, very weighty things. There's difficult questions in there. God gave us an intellect so that we could know Him and understand His Word and explore the word, the world that He made it for us to live in. He gave you your mind so you could know Him with it. He is not glorified by blind, unthinking obedience, but by your desire to know Him, understand Him, and live in relationship with Him. And in part, that will be an intellectual pursuit. He doesn't want robots. He wants you. With all your messy questions and your sense of wonder and your desire to explore and understand things, God made you in such a way that we would be satisfied in Him, and God is intellectually satisfying. But how can I know for sure that Jesus is not saying we should come to Him in a simple-minded, unquestioning way, like a child might? Well, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says this, "'Brothers, do not be children in your thinking.'" Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. And then speaking on the importance of growing in maturity in the knowledge of God, it says in Ephesians 4, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And in Hebrews 5, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he does not mean that. I've made the argument, I think, at least according to God's own word. So what does he mean? If you can't go to heaven unless you come to him like a child, what does he mean? Not just a child, but an infant, a pahidion. It means this. It means coming to him knowing that you can do nothing to save yourself. Coming to Jesus, receiving the kingdom like a child means that you come to Him as a complete and utter dependent. A couple of years ago, Sarah and I had a surprise. We are planning to... We're in this stage of life where I've got kids who are adults. They're fixing to fly the coop and go to college and stuff, and then we decided to have another baby. <laughs> we were like, what? This is our sixth time with babies. And I can tell you, with some authority, Oliver cannot do anything for himself. Oliver cannot change his diaper. Oliver cannot make himself food. Oliver cannot change his clothes. Oliver cannot go to sleep without help sometimes. Oliver is helpless. Oliver is a pahidion. This is an important thing to realize about your state. You're lost, you're cut off, you're a sinner. The question is not, what can you do about it? The question is, what has God done for you? Jesus says, unless you receive the kingdom like a child, you will never enter it. 
Let me tell you something very important about yourself. You might be very capable and competent and a fully grown adult, and you make good decisions and you navigate life well, but spiritually speaking, you are helpless. You've pooped your pants in a big way as a sinner. You're a mess. Yeah, I can say that on Easter. <laughs> I, might, I might hear about it in the board meeting, but I... Listen, you can't put stuff back in the toothpaste tube at all, no. What I'm trying to communicate, inartfully perhaps, is that you're a sinner, guys, and there is not a thing you can do about it. Guys, you have sinned. And you don't need a program, you don't need a to-do list, you need a savior. You need one to do for you what you do not have the capacity to do for yourself. And unless you come to Jesus in that spirit saying, I can't fix this mess I've made, I need a savior, you'll never get into heaven. As long as you think, as long as you think, I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to earn it. I'm going to show God I mean it. I'm going to give and work and live a good, decent, wholesome life. And at the end of it all, God will owe me something. You do not understand the dynamic between you and a righteous God. You have not yet, and I hope you do. Again, I want so badly to help you find the way. Because I'm not a good man. I'm not a good man. I've sinned. No one who comes to Christ can boast in their own righteousness. I have nothing to stand on except the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that's what he means. In saying that you come to him as a child, you come to him as a complete and utter dependent, casting yourself on him. Here's what God did about your sin problem. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus, who was the offended party, came and took the place of the offenders. Amazingly, the righteous God, the one in whom there was no sin, came to earth and lived a perfect, sinless life. And he went to the cross and he hung there publicly, bearing all of your sins. He came and he died for you. So that we might live through him. Now in just a moment, and I'll dismiss them in a moment, my four friends are going to be baptized. One of the most beautiful things about this moment is that Jesus was not ashamed. He was not ashamed to bear their sins publicly on a cross. And he asks that anyone who is a follower of Jesus would likewise not be ashamed to associate with Jesus in publicly. Publicly. This is one of the beautiful things about baptism. Jesus wore us on the cross. And Christians who are baptized associate publicly with Jesus in baptism. The meaning of baptism, it's very appropriate that we do baptism sometimes on Easter morning because baptism from front to end, from beginning to end, is meant as a vivid visual portrayal of the Christian hope and the resurrection. 
Romans 6, 4 through 5 says this, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Here's what is happening when a Christians enter into this practice of being baptized. Baptism, we push them down under the water. We fully submerge them. And that's a picture of going into the grave, all your sins dying with Jesus, and Jesus dying on the cross, and Him going down into the grave. But of course, what would happen if you push someone under the water and refused to bring them back up? You would die. You would die. It's accurate. You would drown. And so the good news is, is that I, we bring you back up out of the water. And that is a picture of the Christian hope in the resurrection. Baptism depicts being united with Christ in His death. Baptism depicts being united with Christ in His life. And it also depicts, and this is less often communicated, I think, in these moments, but it also depicts not only the believer's being unified with Christ, but it also talks very powerfully about them being brought into union with God's people, the church. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes this, there is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit, for the body is not one member but many. You are baptized into one body." And so part and parcel of being unified, being unashamed of Jesus is being unashamed of His bride, the church. So with that, what I'll do is I'll ask our four who are going to be baptized. You can go make ready for that. The worship team is going to come up and they're going to sing a song while they make ready. And let me just pray. Uh, it occurs to me that possibly over the course of this time, uh, maybe somebody is here this morning who has awoken to the reality for the first time that salvation is not found in their own good works, but in the perfect finished work of Jesus on the cross. And you're wondering, what do I do about that? I believe somehow God has opened the eyes of my heart to see and believe in the gospel for the first time. I just want to pray a prayer, a very simple prayer right now, and if you make that your prayer... You can become a follower of Jesus today. Again, it's not complicated. It's not difficult to understand. But it is a narrow way. It does ask for the basis of your hope 
to rest on Jesus and His finished work on the cross, to come to Him as a child knowing there's nothing you can do to make things right as a sinner between you and a righteous God. So let me pray that prayer. You can become my brother, and if you want to and are very brave, I'll even baptize you this morning. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that we are sinners. Father, as it says in your words, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, we believe you. You're a God who never lies, and you've made it known to us that even though the wages of our sinful rebellion is death and punishment and wrath, you want to give us a free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you for showing us your love and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Father, we believe your promises. We believe that they belong to us, that even though we are sinners, you're willing to welcome us home on the basis of our faith in Jesus, who was a substitute for us. He took our place on the cross. He died the death that I deserved and gave me a righteousness and a life that I simply do not deserve. Father, that love is mysterious, but God, I thank you for that gift. And so, Father, I accept that gift. Father, as it says in Romans 10, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Father, I'm calling out to you this morning. I need a Savior. I'm too far gone. I've sinned too much. I cannot clean myself up. Father, I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I'm a pahidion. I'm an infant. Father, I accept that gift, and I ask you to show me how to walk with Jesus from this day until he comes back. Father, help me to live as a follower of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.